If you will, turn with your Bibles to me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Um, now, as a, as a way of intro, while you're turning, um, this, was a, this was a church um, that Paul had visited on one of his missionary journeys. And, and, and like, like so many of the other churches, he uh, poured into them, began to pour into them, and uh, share the gospel with them, and, and as people were getting saved and, and coming to knowledge of the, the Lord Jesus, he was uh, discipling them, uh, and so w- one thing that happened when Paul did this in these cities uh, was he would go and preach the gospel to entire cities, uh, he would make disciples, uh, he would uh, 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 disciple leaders um, so that there was a solid uh, church plant, and then he would leave to do that in another city. And what happened with, uh, with Paul as he was in this city was uh, there was some opposition from Jews that arose and basically ran him out of town. Um, and so Paul didn't get the opportunity like he usually does to pour into this group of people over the amount of time that he probably would have stayed. Uh, and, and, and because of that, um, uh, the Thessalonians uh, were a young group of Christians um, who who, who, who had received the word of God, but hadn't fully developed into maturity yet, right? And so one of the things that Paul dealt with as he writes to them in the first book uh, was, um, one, some people had came to them and told them that the return of Christ had already taken place, and it confused a lot of them. And they had a lot of questions about uh, when this return of Christ would happen, when this return of Jesus uh, would happen. And in the midst of that, some of their friends passed away and people had died, which is something that normally happens in community. Sometimes people die. But what happened was they were concerned because they feared that, that those who had died would not get to partake in the second coming of Jesus. Right. And so that was a concern of theirs. And so and so Paul had to rewrite another letter after the first uh, very short. There was only a short period of time in between uh, the writing of the the first letter and the second letter, because Paul had to uh, encourage them, uh, but also clarify some things to them as it related to the second coming of Jesus. Now, 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 when Paul had got run out of town, um, just as in some of the other churches, they, they, they experienced a lot of persecution, um, both from Jews who had not believed in Jesus, um, but also from Gentiles um, who were over the Jews. And so Paul was accustomed to this type of persecution because he's dealt with it since he's became a believer. Um, but these young Christians are sort of under the foot of these Jews and Gentiles, and they're experiencing suffering, experiencing affliction, experiencing persecution, and they're, again, young believers. And so Paul has to rewrite, Paul has to write another letter to them to encourage them in the faith and to clarify some things to them about the return of Jesus. And we'll talk about the connection that the return of Jesus has to do with their affliction. We'll talk about why, why it is that Paul has to clarify, or what it is about the return of Jesus Paul has to clarify in order for them to persevere and endure. Okay? Now, what I'm going to do, if it's okay with you guys, is uh, we're going we're gonna to go through verses 3 through 8. But I kind of want to deal with uh, verses 5 through 8 first, which is the return of Jesus. And then we're going to go back up and deal with verses 3 and 4, which is Paul's exhortation to them about how they've endured their affliction and persecution. Is that all right with y'all? Cool. 
If y'all said no, I probably would have did it anyway. So, but I figured I'd be um, respectful and ask. So for my for my for my sermon title, people, uh, this is called "Flourishing Under Fire," identified by affliction. Sorry, Pastor E. I know I'm still in your you know kind of tagging along with your identity themed in Ephesians, but flourishing under fire, identified by affliction. So if you're with me in 2 Thessalonians, let's, let's read beginning at verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God. For your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. I'm going to read the rest of the passage, but we'll only deal with verse 8. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, so throughout this section, we have the exhortation of Paul uh, talking about their endurance through their affliction and trials and persecution, which we'll get to later. And we'll talk about the different types of affliction that occurs because uh, persecution is, the, is one of the main ones we talk about, but it's not the only type of affliction. And so we'll walk through what other types of affliction are. Uh, but then he gets to this section. Paul gets to this section and he talks uh, uh, candidly about the coming judgment at Christ's return, right? Now, if you look with me at verse 5, he says something uh, that re re reverts back to verse 4, so kind of stay with me as we kind of get into this a little bit. He says, this is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God. What is the evidence? The, uh, the, the fact that you are enduring, right? This is, Paul kind of reiterates this from uh, Philippians um, chapter 1, verse 28, 27, 28, when he says this, he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. And that, for, and that from God. What Paul is saying here is, he's saying, 
the fruit or the proof of my righteous judgment and my coming return to judge those who persecute you is the fact that I give you strength to endure. That's what Paul is telling them. So he's saying the clear, there's clear proof that I'm with you. And it's not me taking you out of persecution. It's not me removing trials. The clear indication, the proof that my hand is with you and that I will judge those who persecute you is that I will give you the strength to endure. And so that's the, this is one of the first thing Paul's, after he exhorts them, he says, all right, now let me get to the, to the issue at hand. And I need you to know some things in order that you will continue to endure. But know that there's proof. The fruit of endurance is the reality that Jesus is a just God who will vindicate you. And so that's one of the first things he has to get across. So he says, he says this is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, your endurance. And then he goes on and he says, he says, he says, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. Now, what's, what's good about this is this is in the, this is in the, the passive infinitive, infinitive voice, which means that there's nothing that you do to be declared worthy. This is, this is, that, this is that, that doctrine of positional righteousness. Um, yet the, the, the need for the believer to continue in righteousness based on faith through Jesus Christ. And so, so what Paul is saying in here is, is there's nothing you've done to declare yourself righteous, but God is the one who does the declaring righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I've declared you righteous positionally, which means I'm standing in the righteousness, that which is not my own, but it's Christ. But there's still an expectation for you to walk in practical righteousness, right? And so Paul, Paul, has, to, Paul has to dig a little deeper than just the, the issues of what you're suffering with. Paul's saying there needs to be a proper response to how you suffer. It's not enough for you just to suffer and complain about it. See, 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 God calls us, see, he, God calls us to, one, follow the example of Jesus, but he even goes a step further of giving the strength through the Spirit to walk like Jesus did through trials. Now, First Peter describes Jesus as, as in, his, in his being afflicted and in his being persecuted, he opened not his mouth. And there's an, there's an example there of us Staying there, not for the sake of, I'm getting ahead of myself, but there's a reality of us staying under affliction and staying under persecution for the sake of not ourselves. There's always something greater to your problems than you. Always. And we'll get through, we'll get to some of the issues when we talk about afflictions. But the majority, see, when you don't understand, when we go through problems or we, we, we experience troubles or we experience difficulties, what allows God to get the glory is your response. It's all about your response. And so Paul is here telling him, he's saying, listen, listen, I know you're going through some stuff, 
But there's evidence that God is going to vindicate you. Look at your endurance. Right? And then he says, he says but, but there's a kingdom coming that you'll be counted worthy of, but it has nothing to do with what you did. But I still want you to walk in doing something. Right? And so Paul has to, Paul has to lay a foundation for them of understanding what it even looks like to properly think about their trial in a specific way that would cause their hearts to respond how God wants them to respond. And so he says that you may be counted worthy or, or declared worthy. See, there's something about, see, see, one of the aspects of suffering is that it produces character in us. That, that's the, that's the, if you if, find somebody who was always trying to run away from suffering, and I guarantee you they will have character deficiencies. Romans 5, 3, and 4 says this. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. Now, now, in order for Paul to even get to the second coming of Jesus, Jesus, which is where our hope lies, he has to first take them through endurance, which will help work on their character, which will allow them to see the hope that God has in their suffering. And so Paul is, Paul is building a foundation here that you may be considered worthy of the evidence of, uh, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Verse 6. Um, actually, you know, let's, let's stay there. Let's stay there. For which, for which you are also um, suffering. Now, there's a, there's a reality of us living in overlapping kingdoms, so to speak, right? Now, when Jesus came on the scene, the Jews were expecting the kingdom of God to come. John the Baptist had, be pre had been preaching it. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, the kingdom of God did come in the form of Jesus Christ, um, where he walks the earth and lives a sinless life, dies a perfect death, and raises from the dead. Now, it wasn't the kingdom that they were expecting, Yes, but it was in the inauguration of the kingdom of God, right? Um, because that kingdom starts with uh, his, his giving us his spirit, which indwells the hearts of man. So, so the, the, the spirit who is God dwelling in the hearts of man is the inauguration of the kingdom of God. But we're still living in the, this, the reality of an already but not yet. Right. And so though we're in the inauguration of the kingdom of God, there hasn't been yet a consummation of the of the comprehensive totality of that kingdom being fully fulfilled when Jesus will return and call us home to be with him. Give us glorified bodies and we'll dwell with him forever. That's the consummation. And so Paul is saying you're suffering both for the kingdom of God and to be counted worthy of the kingdom of God. Right. And I mean, Paul says this, Paul says this in Acts. Paul was stoned, kicked out of, of Antioch. And the first thing he says is, he says, through many trials and tribulations, 
will we inherit the kingdom of God. And so there was a reality of us as a believer having to suffer a particular type of way for a particular time, both to be counted worthy and for the kingdom of God. Right? Verse 6. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with afflictions those who afflict you. Since God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Basically, Jesus is going to come back and he's going he's to wreck shop on some eye for an eye. That's how it is. I could probably explain more, but that's as simple as I can get. An eye for an eye. Revelation 20 said that the book will be opened and, and men will be judged according to their deeds. And so even though we are justified through faith, when Jesus comes back to judge, it will be according to what you've done. And God will give you an eye for an eye. And so in a moral sense, we're talking about the, justice of, the justness of God, which allows him to do this because his judgments are always perfect. He always makes the right decision. There's never a time where he made a decision and had to go back and change his mind or erase it from the history books. He was never wrong about it. See, when we judge, we get things wrong all the time. I mean, we can look at our court system. 30 years later, they get a DNA test done, innocent. Or you were guilty, but circumstances and witness tampering made us throw the case out. When Jesus judges, it's always right. And it's always perfect. We can't judge because we, now, don't hear me say, like, I'm not talking about judging in terms of us as believers being able to judge rightly with one another according to sin. Because, you know, the whole slogan of this generation is don't judge me. That's not what I'm talking about. Just so we make that clear. Because I don't want none of y'all saying, Pastor Kurt said you can't judge me. I didn't say that. As it relates to perfect, holy judgment, the ability to make judgment without being flawed at all, Jesus does that. And so when he comes back, he's able to look at both what you said with your mouth and what was going on with your heart and match them up to see if they aligned. And he's able to judge you just like that. Right? So indeed, God, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Now, this is almost, this, this is sort of one of those, this can be one of those things where it's like, aha, like us as believers, man, they're afflicting us. We want to get back at them. We want to take vengeance on our own. And so, so this could be, this could have been one of those, um, uh, I guess, one of those rally cries. See, yeah, yeah, yeah. See, God going to get y'all. God going to get y'all. And I can't wait. I can't wait to watch him. He going to get you. Right. And so so there is a reality of God taking vengeance on our behalf, but he also tells us not to take vengeance. Right. Uh, it says in Romans 12, 14, 19 through 21 it says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. 
This is hard stuff. We, I'm going to read the rest of it. We read this stuff. We don't do this stuff. James 1, like, will you be more than just a hearer of the word but a doer? This is hard Bible stuff. Too many people don't teach this right here. Bless those that persecute you. Do not curse them. Verse 19. Are y'all listening? Never avenge yourself. Leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But he, see, he, he It'd be, it would be good. It'd be easy if he just left it there. Vengeance is mine. Don't avenge yourself. Don't curse him. That, that, that would be a lot easier. See, we can't even do that part. We have trouble doing that part. Watch what he says. Verse 20. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry... Feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. See, y'all think, y'all think when, y'all, when somebody does something wrong to you and you try to get them back, that, that, that that's, that's really doing something. That, that that's really doing something. You're you hurting them by getting them back. But you know what Jesus, Jesus said? This is how you hurt them. Do something nice for them. You angry because they messed with you? You want to make them angry back? Give them something to eat. You really want to hurt their feelings? Wait till they're thirsty, and then bring them a glass of water. You and your wife beefing, and, and she, she tired of you just laying around the house? You really want to get your, your wife angry at you? Clean the whole house. Go buy some flowers or something. You really want to get her mad? Go, man, go just, just go take her on a nice date. Rub her feet and stuff. My wife, you know, I don't like feet, but if I want to get her angry, I rub her feet all day. Hey, listen, man, I was at that Sex in the Gospel conference. That's sanctified now. This is what, this is what he's calling us to. In, in, in light of persecution, in light of being afflicted, in light of troubles and trials, he's calling us to, to bless our enemies and not curse them. He's, to, he's calling us to not take vengeance upon ourselves, but he's calling us to more than that. He says, go love them. Go love them. And so Paul is saying, he's saying, Don't, there's a reason why I'm, why I'm telling you not to avenge yourself. One, because you're going to do it all wrong. And it's never going to be just. Like, you're never going to get justice 
if you try it yourself. Wait for the Lord to do it for you. You really want your name to be cleared? You really want to be justified? Wait for the Lord to do it for you. The minute you begin to try to do it yourself, you're going to mess it all up. And it's going to be worse than it was. The Lord considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Now, here comes the good part. Here comes the good part, because he's telling them to suffer and all that stuff and, and to stay underneath it. Don't take vengeance against themselves. Uh, against themselves. But what does he say in verse 7? He says, uh, so he says, God is going to come repay with affliction those who afflict you. And then he says, to grant relief. That's good news. I know it was good news to them because they're actually being afflicted. So the Lord is going to come. He's going to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. Now, Paul, when he's saying this to the, to the uh, Thessalonians, he's not, he's, not, he's not saying this from a heart of being removed himself from persecution, right? Because Paul, uh, when he was approached by dudes who were questioning uh, the genuineness of his apostleship, he said, oh, 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 yeah, oh, oh, word? You, you want to follow them cats? You want to follow them? Okay, hey, I'm going to show you my credentials. And he lifted up his shirt. And he said, I've been stoned. Then, then he pulled off his shirt and showed him his back and said, I've been whipped and beaten and left for dead. He probably still had some permanent bruises because he had been shipwrecked for the sake of the gospel. He said, he said, he said I bear the marks of the Lord Jesus on my body. Where y'all at? So Paul knew about their trials. He knew about their afflictions because he himself was experiencing them while he was writing this. This wasn't new to him. It wasn't foreign to him. Paul was telling them to do the same exact things that he himself had to do, which was entrust himself to a just and righteous and holy God and wait for God to avenge him. And so Paul, Paul no doubt, is being encouraged by this too. Dag, I need to do this too. And he's writing this to them and trying to encourage them while he's encouraging himself about the, like, the reality of who God is. He said, you need to know that God is just. You need to know that when he comes back to judge, he's not going to leave any rock unturned. You need to be, you need to be fully assured um, that if you leave your vengeance in the hands of God, he will avenge fully. You don't have to do it now. Stop worrying about being so temporal. It doesn't last anyway. You're trying to fix stuff that's going to be broke tomorrow. So he says, he says, he says listen, the Lord is coming and he's going to grant relief to, to those who are being, to you who are being afflicted, but also to us. I'm waiting with you. I'm waiting with you. Now, this is the key, though. This is the key. To, to, to that relief being granted. Look, look what he says in verse 7. Y'all gonna, y'all gonna, uh, y'all not gonna like me for this. I ain't write it though. I'm just telling you now. I didn't write it. Verse 7. Uh, 
Well, six and seven. Uh, Since God considers it just to repay with afflictions those who afflict you, seven, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when what? I, I didn't hear that. When what? When the Lord Jesus is revealed. I don't think y'all got that. He says that God is going to grant relief to you who are being afflicted when Jesus comes back. I'm going to let that soak in for a second. Paul did not preach to them that you should try to remove yourself. Paul didn't preach to them an escape. He says your escape is enduring until the Lord comes back. This is hard stuff. You want relief? I want relief for you. You'll get it when Jesus comes back. This is hard stuff as a, as a Christian to, to, to swallow, but the, the truth is, Paul is saying to them, the greatest hope of endurance that I can give you right now that will be long-lasting, that will not fade, that you won't have to look for tomorrow, is waiting until Jesus returns. That's the only thing I can give you that will get you through. Wait for his return. Because the relief you get, you will never have to look for again. When he returns and makes everything right, you won't have to look for it again. You will get that relief. You will experience peace when he comes back. Can you wait for it? Can you wait for it? You know what, before we get into this section of the return of Jesus, um, this, is a very, this is very important, because I'm not assuming that everybody in here is a believer. And so before we talk about the return of Jesus and what judgment for unbelievers is going to look like, got to do this. If you have not trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and forgiver of sins, you are standing in the path of the wrath of God and you will experience eternal and ultimate pain and separation from the love, glory, power, and mercy of God for eternity. There is no other way. John 14, 6, Jesus did not mince words. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Conditional. No man comes to the Father but by me. No man. No man. Nobody. Jesus is the only way. There are no other ways. That's a hard truth that people don't preach today. There is no 
other way. Jesus is the way. So if you think you can be good enough, you're wrong. If you think you can read your Bible enough, you're wrong. If you have perfect attendance, come in here on Sunday, you're wrong. Jesus and Jesus alone. If you don't know him, you will experience the eternal wrath of God forever. You need to be saved. Your sins need to be forgiven. Peter says in Acts, he says, there is salvation by no one else given to no other name under heaven but the Lord Jesus. If you don't know Jesus today, please, please don't, don't hear me yelling at you and think that I'm angry. This is the most loving thing I can tell you right now. Trust Jesus. Please, please trust him. Verse 7, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Now, now, now Paul, Paul in, bo in both 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, when he talks about this return of Jesus, um, it is both an unwelcome and sudden surprise for unbelievers, uh, but both a welcome, but a welcome event for those uh, who have uh, trusted um, in Christ. And so the greatest comfort that Paul could give the church was, um, was this reality of Jesus' return and him making, making everything, everything right. And so even in the first letter, in, in chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, he says, he says, then we who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. That's a key phrase. Encourage one another with these words. These words being us talking about the return of Jesus. The only thing that happens now amongst believers when we talk about the second coming of Christ is a bunch of arguments and confusion. Because either you're I-mill, post-mill, pre-mill. I, I don't even know how many mills there are. But, but all we do is argue. The reality is Jesus is coming back. Will you be ready? I don't care about the rest of that stuff because it really don't matter. Jesus is coming back. Will you be ready? And so these words for us, they, like when we talk about the coming of Jesus, it's not supposed to be confusing. It's not supposed to be confused. confusing. When Paul talks to them about the second coming of Jesus, what does he say? He says, you, now tell what I've told you to other people for encouragement. Like our, the reality of our hope lies in, in knowing that Jesus is coming back. Because if he's not, then we're a bunch of fools. And so he says, encourage one another with these words, right? Jesus' return. Now, there's a, there's a few things we know about Jesus' return. One, as believers, we know Jesus, we believe Jesus to, be, to come back personally. So we expect the actual person of Jesus Christ with a body to return, right? Uh, it says in, in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, the Lord himself will descend, right? And so we're expecting the bodily return of Jesus Christ, right? 
We expect him to return powerfully, right? Now, when we think about uh, this powerful return, the imagery of Revelation chapter, chapter 11, verses uh, 11 through 16, like you see Jesus coming back, sitting on this white horse, and he's got a robe on that's been dipped in blood, and he's got a tat on his thigh that only he knows the name to. And he's, he's going to come down, and the sword is going to come from his mouth. And he's going to slaughter all of his enemies that have gathered to try and defeat him. And we're going to be standing behind him in white linens watching him as he destroys all of his enemies. And he, and he sits on the throne. The, 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 the Bible's real visual. Because God is going to call a feast of the birds, and he's going to say, yo, yo y'all ready to eat? Cool. And as he slays his enemies down, he's going to call the birds and they're going to feast on the flesh of all the people that have been left blood soaked in the valleys. He came as a lamb the first time. Don't be mistaken. He going to come. And when he come, ain't, ain't, like you can't, ain't, ain't nothing you can do. The minute he comes, it's a wrap. You've lost your opportunity to accept him as Christ. Right there. It's too late. It says, it says, in the end days, they will be as in the time of Noah, when they were eating and drinking, and they were marrying and being given in marriage, and then the flood came upon them. So it will be in the day when the Lord returns. And people will not be ready. Revelation says that people, rather than having to stand face to face with this almighty, powerful judge, Jesus, and rather than doing that, they will run to the mountains and cry that the mountains would fall upon them, thinking that that will be their escape, only to die and face him for all of eternity. This is real stuff. And we're talking about real people that will experience the wrath of God forever. Not too many people are preaching this, though. There's only going to be two kinds of people when he returns. Those who are raised to eternal life and those who are raised to eternal death. And, and it's, it's funny how some people think that um, after Jesus uh, slaughters his enemies, that they will just simply cease to exist. Unfortunately, that won't happen. In Matthew uh, 25, verse 46, the, the, word, the Greek word that Matthew uses for uh, the word eternal, both for the righteous and the unrighteous, is the same exact word. It means the same exact thing. So for the, etern for the righteous who will be raised for eternal life, they will experience unending satisfactory and joy in the presence of an almighty God forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Now, it, it blows my mind that people would say that even though the same word is used for the unbelieving, it means something different. No, it doesn't. If you haven't trusted Christ, you will experience the wrath of God forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. That should do two things for us as believers. That should do two things for us. 
Romans 5, 9. We haven't been saved from hell. We haven't been saved from, sin, uh, from death. Romans 5, 9 says we've been saved from the wrath of God. And so when you hear a message like this as a Christian, the first thing that you ought to do is fall on your knees and rejoice to this loving, merciful, almighty God that you will never, ever, ever have to experience his wrath. See, we wrestle with God now when he does stuff in our lives that we don't like. But believe me, even his discipline comes from a hand of love. You, if you're in Christ, you have never or will never experience the wrath of God. That should be a cause for celebration. You will never have to experience the wrath of God if you've trusted Christ. Everything that he does for you, even if you don't like it, is from a loving hand. Now, in light of that, the second thing that this should cause us to do as believers is have an unending, relentless pursuit of those who don't know Jesus. It has to. It has to. It's not enough for this to just be about us. It can't be. Some of your family, some of your friends are in jeopardy of facing the wrath of God, but yet we sit idly by. You've been given the key to life through the message of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you really love somebody, tell them about the wrath of God. That's all you have. Don't tell them to come to church. If your motivation is to get them filling these seats, like, it's pointless. They need to know about the wrath of God. They need to know about forgiveness of sins. They need to trust in this Jesus who's coming back. So what would it be like? What will it be like when when uh when Jesus returns for the for the Christian? I'm gonna run through a bunch of verses here, so so stay with me. Uh, stay with me. First Thessalonians uh, 4, 16 and 17 says, We will be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air, and we will always be with the Lord. Right? Uh, Philippians 3 20, 21. He will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Right, 1 Corinthians 15 talks about us having an indestructible, immortal bodies. If, you, if you've been here when Pastor E gets ex- all excited about what our bodies are going to look like, even though we don't really know yet, and like, he'll, he'll tell you we're going to have these crazy bodies, and he's just going to be able to disappear through walls and stuff, but yet it's still going to be a physical body. That's crazy. I don't know what it's going to look like, but I hope that's it, because that's going to be ridiculous. But, uh, but, but so we're going to get these crazy bodies. And, and, and John, in, in 1 John 3, Two says, we don't yet know what we will be, but we know that we will be like him, right? And the example we get of being like him is understanding that Jesus had a physical body when he got up from the grave. It wasn't a spiritual one. Jesus had a physical body. That's why he told Thomas to hear, like, you, you, you want to know, I need you to touch me to know that I'm really here. He, he ate with them. He drank with them, yet he still, for some crazy reason, was able just to disappear in the air and then reappear at certain times in a physical body. It's going to be bananas. 
Now, I know we're not, side note, I know we're not going to really, you know, we're not going to be caring about what these bodies look like because you're going to be too busy worshiping Jesus in eternity, right? But you can't tell me it wouldn't be cool if he let us get a trial run of what these bodies could actually do. I'm just, just being honest. Maybe, maybe that's just my earthly mind, but that'd be dope, though. It'd be dope. Revelations 19 says that, that uh, we, we will be prepared uh, for the marriage feast. Us as his bride, beholding the bridegroom, prepared uh, to consummate this union with him. That's going to be so great, right? What would it be like for unbelievers at Christ's return? Matthew 8, 12. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Mark 9, 47 and 48. Where their worm, a place where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, now, now keep in mind as we talk about these bodies that we're going to have, like those who are raised uh, to eternal uh, punishment and death will have these imperishable bodies, imperishable bodies as well. They, they, they will not, they'll, they'll be indestructible. However, they'll be faced uh, uh, like consuming this inquenchable fire and pain that won't destroy their bodies but will still hurt like crazy beyond any type of experience that you've ever experienced. Think about the worst type of pain you've ever had to deal with in your life and multiply it times uh, whatever the largest number you can think of is. That's what it's going to be like, and it's going to be worse than that. Luke 16, the example of the rich man and Lazarus, and the rich man is in anguish, right? Revelation 10, 2010, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is, the, this is the wrath of God we're talking about. This is, this is the wrath of God, which is just. Like, this isn't, this isn't like, we can't say that he's not being fair. We can't say he's not giving you what you deserve. We're talking about human beings having sinned against a holy, perfect, righteous God, and then him coming back and saying, I'm giving you what you asked for. Complete utter and total separation from me. In terms of my, my, my attributes that, that you would have benefited from anyway, because I'll still be there. My wrath will be there. My justness will be there. My righteousness and holiness will be there. But you won't experience them how I wanted you to. And it says Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his Mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Um, and so, to, so, so this word, this word know, the uh, New Testament usually uses two words um, for the word uh, to know or, or to like a knowledge of. One word would, would uh, indicate like a facts-based knowledge about somebody. Like you know this, that, and, and that about them. Uh, however, the other word would say that uh, would, would indicate an experiential or a personal, an intimate knowledge of, right? Um, and so uh, to know God is to know him as the one true God as distinguished from false gods. To know his will, his holiness, his hatred of sin, and his saving intent toward mankind, right? 
um, that those who know, who know not God and those who uh, obey not the gospel, those are the two classes that Paul talks about here, right? And so it is probable, it's not probable that Paul has in mind a distinction uh, between Jews and Gentiles because the Jews were not ignorant of God, yet they are described as not knowing him. And the Gentiles are described by Paul as knowing God, but as refusing to glorify him as God. And so uh, Paul describes here the subjects of God's judgment as one class under different aspects. And so he's talking about the, the whole of uh, believers here, um, but in two different classes in terms of uh, uh, those who don't know God and then those who don't obey God, right? And so this is, this is Paul saying, listen, the judgment of God is coming. The judgment of God is, is coming, but, but the second, like this coming and his judgment and his avenging you is, is, is hope for you. To help you to endure, because I want you to see that I'm a just God who's going to return on your behalf and take you home and give you a relief that will never, ever end. Um, but I need you to look towards that as your hope. Right? Okay, so let, let's, let's jump back up to 3 and 4 real quick. Verses 3 and 4. And talk about what, what uh, Paul's exhortation of them, because my time is, is running short, so we're going to run through this very quickly. Okay? Uh, verses verses three and four. Um, but before we jump into that, let's go through affliction real real quick. The different types of affliction uh, that we experience um, as human beings and as uh, believers. Now, in the Old Testament, the old T, the Old Testament identifies many forms of affliction. Right. So there's national affliction resulting from the oppression of a political entity. Uh, there's social affliction resulting from a perversion of the law. There's moral affliction as God's retribution for sin. Uh, there's natural affliction and there's spiritual affliction, right? So that's Old Testament. New Testament types of affliction or, or suffering, because uh, there's a multiple words for the word affliction uh, interchangeable with suffering at some points. Uh, so so God's, uh, God's use or God uses affliction to induce humility, uh, to promote holiness for eschatological endurance, which is what, something we see here, experience for the instruction of others. That's crazy. God Put, like God allowing you to go through a suffering or an affliction so somebody can look at your response and learn from it. And you thought suffering was all about you. Imagine that. Natural causes, um, persecution because of faithfulness to Christ, discipline for the purpose of Christian maturity, pain resulting from personal sin. Uh, affliction can be an individual matter or a corporate matter. And so these are, these are some of the ways in which we experience difficulty, affliction, persecution, and all of those things. And so this is what the Thessalonians were experiencing. They were experiencing all of these different types, maybe not all of them, but a good amount of these types of affliction, right? And so, so Paul, says something, Paul says something to them in verses 3 and 4 where he basically says, he says, listen, it, like, because of how you've endured, like, I, I got to give you a shout out. Got to give you a shout out. Right. And so first first he says to them, he says, your faith is growing exceedingly. Right. This is the, the Greek word, the Greek word, uparoxana, which means uh, it implies a very vigorous growth an aggressive growth. Right. And so Paul says, in light of your persecution, in light of your difficulties, in light of the afflictions you're experiencing, you still you still you still not only grow in your faith in Christ, but exceedingly. Then he says, second, he says, he says, that love of every one of you for everybody, for, for, for everybody else is increasing. So 
in, in spite of all of this that's going on in your midst, you continue to love one another. That doesn't mean that y'all don't get along sometimes. That means that you bear with one another. You comfort with one another. You cry with one another. You, you go to one another and deal with the issues that need to be dealt with, but in love. And then third, he says, he says, um, because your, your steadfastness and, and, and your faith um, through endurance, right? And so Paul lays out their, grow, their, their, their faith in Christ, which is growing exceedingly. Um, the love that they have for one another is increasing, and you continue to be steadfast in faith as you endure. Like, you have the marks of a grown-up church, even though you're young in the faith. And because of that, I have to, I got to shout you out. And he says in, he says in, verse, um, in verse 4, he says, Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God. And so what Paul is saying here is he said, you're going to go through afflictions. You're going to suffer some things. You're going to experience hardship. But I need you to have an eternal perspective of Jesus' return so that you can be marked by a growing faith, a love for God and his people, and endurance. And so when we think about the second coming of Jesus, when we think about this return of this king who is God and is the Christ, like, like when you're in afflictions, think on that and allow it to encourage you to endure. That he's just, that he'll avenge you, and that he'll do it fully and completely when he comes back. Can you wait that long? Will your life be identified by marks of growing up in the faith? Not remaining children in the faith, but growing up and being marked by faith, love, and endurance. Will Jesus be able to boast about us? Will he boast about us to, the, to other churches? That's my prayer. My prayer is that, that through our, our suffering, through our difficulties, our eyes would be set on this glorious king who's going to return. And that would give us a passion to endure so that people can look at our response and see Jesus and submit their lives to him. Stop inviting people to this, this unbiblical Christianity. Start inviting people to suffer with you. Start inviting people to come through difficulty with you. I pray that that would be us today. I pray that that would be us. Father, God, we worship you because your name is worthy to be worshiped. Jesus, who is the Christ, who is God, died on the cross to give us freedom from the wrath that is to come. God, I pray that our our priorities in life would not be twisted. I pray that our, our goals in life would not be misguided. I pray that our soul and only passion would be seeing you deliver people from spiritual death to spiritual life. For our children, the honor roll is good. Being a good basketball player is good. It means nothing compared to having a relationship with Jesus. 
May we be a people who seek your face and seek your rest and seek your relief through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he really died and he really raised so that we could really experience true freedom in him. Be glorified, Lord. Be glorified. And may the name of the Lord Jesus Christ reign far and wide as we suffer for his sake and for his glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.